Please, please. Okay, please. Now look here. You, you know what this sounds like? You think it's my last year, don't you? I mean, I was planning to come back next year. I think I'll better quit while I'm ahead. It won't get better than that. My word. My. Oh, dear. I had it all planned, what I was going to say. Well, thank you, Michael. As you may know, I'm on his European board. I've got off all boards. But I will always stay on Michael Yusuf's board, leading the way. Uh, to be totally serious, honest before the Lord, before you, I know of nobody like him. And the ministry he has, there's, there's no equal to it. And so I'm honored to be on his board, and, and I love coming here. Uh, and so thank you. we got T.R., Annette is home. She has a break from the grandsons. We've got all three of our grandsons, Tony, uh, Timothy, and Ty. And uh, anyway, just wonderful to be back. I'm, you know, I'm, I forgot all the things I was going to say, but I, I really appreciate what Michael just said. I'll try to come to myself. Well, now, three days ago, it became clear to me what I should preach on today. Uh, there's someone who knows the details. If they want to tell that, that's up to them. But I, it's one of those times I know I'm led, but I'm a little reluctant, and I'll tell you why. Some of this you have heard before, some of you. Uh, but homiletically, it's a totally different sermon. So if you have heard some of it, you won't all be bored. But, but I'll explain what I mean. I want to start out with my text, Hebrews 13, verse 8, uh, which says, For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then read to you from John chapter 20, uh, starting at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, the place, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, 
and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order, in order that their perception, what I say will be heard, received as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to say everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be clear, simple. May this be life-changing and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, while we were still in London, we would take our vacations in South Florida in the summer, and uh, there was a Sunday, arguably the most contradictory Sunday <laughs> of my ministry, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. On the Sunday morning, I had agreed to preach at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church for D. James Kennedy. Uh, honored to be there, as, as it is an honor to be here, uh, except that I wore Jim Kennedy's robe. It was a very liturgical service. We processed down the aisle, and I preached a sermon. It was probably okay. And then that afternoon, I had agreed to preach in Bimini in the Bahamas. So I take a plane to Bimini that afternoon. Now, Bonefish Sam who's a legendary guide in uh, uh, the Bahamas. Uh, he's been on many American TV shows. If you remember years ago, What's My Line to Tell the Truth? Bonefish Sam was a legend. But he was also pastor of a church, and he wanted me to preach for him. And so now, having been with Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, dressed up, now I'm in my tennis shoes, T-shirt, and we're all on our knees. I'm the only white man there, 19 Bahamians on their knees, all of them praying out loud at the same time. And I'm on my knees, and I hadn't really thought about it till right then. I thought, Lord, what shall I preach here? And I promise you, never before or since have I had anything like it, a sense of God on me, Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, 
And it, became, it just became clear. In what sense is he the same? Well, he looks the same. If you could see him today, he's 33 years old. His face hasn't changed. He still has the marks in his hands. And I preached how throughout eternity, all of us will have perfect bodies. There will only be one in heaven with any blemish. And that's Jesus. He will still have the nail prints in his hands throughout eternity to remind us how we got there in the first place. And I want you to know that that evening, I had more power in preaching than I had ever known in Westminster Chapel. And I thought, Lord, why don't you give me this in London, where I preach to the world, why didn't you give it to me this morning at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church? Thousands there on TV. You give it to 19 black Bahamians whose jobs are changing sheets, cleaning toilets, people that nobody will ever hear or hear about. And I just realized this is God's style. He loves to reach those that nobody wants to have anything to do with. And I have longed for that kind of power. And I won't expect to have it even right now, but I can give you some of the overflow of when I preached that night. And so in what sense is Jesus the same? Well, he looks the same. But then I asked the question, why is this verse here? It's one of those verses that could be understood outside their context. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever that deserves to be in the Bible. It could have been in John, anywhere in Acts, anywhere in Romans. It could have been anywhere. But I thought, why is it here? Ah, look at the context. Not only does he look the same, he leads the same. Because here is what the writer says. Just before saying Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, he says for, you know, these are expensive glasses. They cost hundreds of dollars. They are bifocals, but they don't work. And I've told my optometrist again and again, go to Publix and you can get these. <laughs> Verse 7 says, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the Word of God consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the next verse, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. You see, the reason the writer put that verse here is to let you know that the Christian faith does not change. It cannot be improved upon. The early threat to the earliest church was called Gnosticism. These Gnostics, they had a new way of knowing. And they said to the Christians, what you teach, what you believe is really good. We can make it better. And they wormed their way in, got in through the back door. This is why Jude, verse 3, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. You see, it, the leaders 
were to teach the same thing. The next generation, the same thing. Next generation, the same thing. Never ever imagine that the Christian faith can be improved upon. It cannot change. It cannot get better. You have it, Colossians chapter 1, verse 7. The faith. Now, why is this important? Well, for one reason, you may or may not know that the next monarch in England will be Prince Charles. Now, the head of the Church of England, the governor, the supreme governor, is the queen, and her job is to defend the faith of the Church of England. The faith. Prince Charles has said he will defend faith. And many people say, oh, that's nice. Not the faith, faith. So you can be a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, a Muslim, Confucius, Christian. He will defend faith. And most people just think this is lovely. And they miss the point. It is the faith. And this is why we have Jesus Christ as the same yesterday, today, forever put here. Your leaders, they will teach you the Word. It doesn't change. And the worst thing that can ever happen is where we get the idea that we can improve upon the gospel. You know, Dr. Yusuf has been very kind to let us sell some of our books. And uh, I forgot to mention it. Uh, please don't misunderstand this. What made me think of it is not that I have books. I've just written a book called Prophetic Integrity. It deals with all of these people, these prophets, who said God told them who will be the next president, and every one of them got it wrong. Every one of them. Do they climb down? Do they admit? Do they say sorry? No, too proud. And they are governed by a theology called open theism. Now, many never heard of it. The idea is that God is open to us to know what to do. In fact, here's the premise. God does not know the future, but He looks to us to know what He should do next. Now, that is something that is sweeping the church. And I'm telling you, it's come into evangelicals, charismatics, Pentecostals, and that's the theology that's governing people who, what they do, they tell you who they want, and they claim it, and they say, therefore, it is from God, and they get it completely wrong. It's dangerous. And the thing is, it is the faith that we must never, ever try to improve on, try to be clever. It's the same faith. Jesus Christ is the same. Not only He looks the same, He leads the same. It's by the Word. But then He listens the same. How do we know? Well, when Thomas heard that the disciples had seen Jesus, uh, Thomas may have been feeling a little sorry for himself and say, well, I won't believe it until I see him, whatever. He just said, unless I see the prints of the nails in his hands and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. Thomas couldn't have known that Jesus was listening to him. It's a reminder that he hears 
our conversations. Malachi 3.16, there's a book of remembrance where God listens to what we are saying. This is scary. Every conversation, God's eavesdropping. I'll tell you, my most unfavorite verse in the Bible, shall I tell you? Matthew 11.35. No, 12.35. Every idle word you'll give an account of in the day of judgment. How does that make you feel? I tell you what, when, when it's revealed, my every idle word, I hope you're not there. <laughs> but remember, he listens. And Thomas couldn't have known. Thomas couldn't have known that Jesus was eavesdropping when he said, unless I see the prints of the nails in his hands. And so eight days later, Jesus shows up again. Now here's what is amazing about this passage in John chapter 20. The disciples, 10 of them, Judas out of the picture, Thomas for some reason not there, 10 of them, they had heard that Jesus was alive. There was rumors going around. Mary Magdalene told it. And they are nervous. They're afraid for the Jews. And if it's really true that Jesus is alive, they dread to have to see him. And lo and behold, feeling guilty, feeling horrible, Jesus shows up behind locked doors. Now, how would you react to somebody that <laughs> let you down? Suppose you heard your best friend say something about you and he gets caught and you look at him and say, how could you say that? I thought we were friends. And so at the natural level, here are the disciples. They are feeling horrible. And there's Jesus. He shows up. Oh dear, what Ever will he say? We may expect him to say, Thanks a lot. Where were you on Good Friday? For three years I've spoon fed you, I've taught you. And when I needed you the most, you deserted me. Matthew 25 56, they all, not just Simon Peter, they all forsook him and fled. And they're feeling horrible. What's he going to say? Opening words. Peace. And that's not all. He lets them know that the plan of God hasn't changed one bit. As my Father has sent me, so send I you. He doesn't say, Peter, you are going to get to preach the sermon on the day of Pentecost can't use you now. He could look at all of them. But you know, you talk about total forgiveness. They can't believe it, that the very person that they denied, that they ran from, that they let down. And some days later, there's Simon Peter, of all the ones most undeserving, preaching with such power scared to death of a Galilean servant and denies Jesus, now before the Sanhedrin, 
with power unheard of, how could Peter preach like that? Well, for one reason, there was not an ounce of self-righteousness in Peter. He knew he didn't deserve it. You know, I had a taste of this once. Several years ago at Westminster, one Sunday morning, just as I was walking out the door, you go down the lift, just as I walked out the door, Louise and I had an argument. It was a dandy. She was horrible. I slammed the door, pushed the button, down the lift, five minutes walk to the chapel. Next thing you know, I'm st- sitting in the chair next to the pulpit. God help me today. Oh Lord, however will I preach today? There's no, this is going to be the disaster of the year. Oh, what can I say, Lord? I stood up to preach. Well, start out with the doxology, the hymn, and I look for Louise, and she's not there. Seat's vacant. Th- oh, no, she's not even going to come hear me. Can't blame her. Then she comes. Oh, good. But she won't look at me. So singing all the hymns, uh, praise my soul, the king of... She's not there. Oh, no. Offering time. Deacon gives the notices. I think, I'll write her a note and say, I'm sorry. But then the deacon will read it, and I don't want him to know we've had a fight. (laughs) And I keep looking there, and she won't look at me. And I thought, I've got to preach, and this will be the disaster of my ministry. I promise you, I had the most power I've ever had at Westminster Chapel. I couldn't believe it. I soared. I thought, where is this coming from? I was preaching. Oh, it was wonderful. And it hit me. There was not a bit of self-righteousness in me. Not one of those, oh, I'm prepared today. I prayed up. I, you know, I was so utterly unworthy. And God could just take over. That way, he gets all the glory. That's what happened to Peter on the day of Pentecost. He knew it wasn't him. And some of us imagine we get things right, and and we get a halo over our heads. And so Jesus knew just how they felt. He doesn't look at them and say, shame on you. How could you do this? No, he's bigger than that. We're loved with an everlasting love. And there may be someone here right now. You know you've let the Lord down, and you feel so unworthy. And you say, how can I pray? How can I even talk to him? And God's got a word for you, wherever you are. Peace. Peace. And that's the kind of love we have from Jesus. And now I'm going to turn things a little different different before I close. In this part, some of you have heard before, and I feel that I'm supposed to say this. You say, R.T., you think we need this? Yep, you do. I could preach this almost every week. It's that word that was born in the darkest hour Louise and I had ever known. As Charles Dickens put it, 
the worst of times, the best of times. That was our 25 years in London. Horrible times, good times. And what happened was so unjust, it was so wrong, it was so unfair, it was so ill-timed, and I was betrayed. And my future was now bleak. It was as if I'm finished. I'm out of here. we got to get a plane back to America. Darkest hour. But I heard that an old friend from Romania was in London, Joseph Tone, spelled T-O-N, pronounced T-S-O-N, Tone. And because I knew he wouldn't tell anybody, I decided to tell Joseph what they did. And if I'm honest, my motive <laughs> was to, I thought Joseph will put his arm around me and say, R.T., you ought to get it out of your chest. Get angry. Go ahead. Pour it out. Pour it out. And I did. I told him everything. And then he said, is there anything more? No, you got it. That's it, Joseph. I wasn't prepared for what followed. If I could narrow 25 years down to 15 minutes, and I had the privilege of telling him yesterday on the phone. He now lives in Portland, Oregon. He's 90 years old. And his wife called me back and, to say how much my word to Joseph lifted him up. He's, he's had COVID. He's not well. And I got to tell him, I said, Joseph, if it weren't for your word, I wouldn't be here today. I'd die a thousand deaths at the thought that I'd never met Joseph Zold. And then I mimicked him, as I do, and I told him, I said, I tell this all over the world, Joseph, I can mimic you. And he laughed when he said to me, when I was expecting him to say, get it out of your system, he said, R.T., you must totally forgive them. Or in his Romanian accent, and this is what I got him to laugh over the phone, you must totally forgive them. <laughs> For until you totally forgive them, you will be in chains. Release them, and you will be released. Nobody had ever talked to me like that in my life. Faithful of the wounds of a friend. And I can tell you, I needed it so much. And I have a feeling, even if you've heard it before, you may have broken your promise, or if it's new to you, it could be that what has happened to you is so wrong, so unjust, so unfair. Maybe you were tr promised a job and somebody else got it. Maybe your spouse was unfaithful to you. Maybe you were raped. Maybe you were abused as a child and you've grown up with a hatred, and I understand that. Maybe you've been lied about, and everybody believes the lie, and there's not a thing you can do about it, and you seethe within. I really do have a word for you. I'm just passing it on. You must totally 
forgive them. Release them, and you will be released. How do you know you've totally forgiven? I'll say it in five minutes. I'll close quickly. But here are the principles. Principle number one, you don't tell anybody what they did. Tell God. Tell one other person for therapeutic reasons. I told Joseph's own. Somebody that won't tell anybody. You can tell one, not two, not ten, not twenty. One. And tell God. As the old spiritual put it, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. That's the way he wants it. Tell him. But our, imp, our imp, uh, Paul says always when you, somebody does something wrong, we're on the phone, here's what they did to me. You cannot bear the thought that anybody will like them anymore. You want to put the record straight. Don't. How would you like for God to tell what he knows about you? He doesn't. Peace. As the Father sent me, do that. You say it's hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. It goes right against nature. But I can't begin to describe the joy that will follow. You don't tell what they did. You don't let them be nervous about you, around you. You know, when we know somebody knows that we're angry, they're scared to see us. They look the other way. And you say, good, I hope they really feel it. No, that's not good. Put them at ease. You know, husbands, wives play this game. Keep the other nervous. Guessing. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. Why do we keep records? To prove we've paid. Why do we keep a record of wrong? Well, so we can throw it up. I will remember that. Listen to me. Any marriage on the rocks can be healed by sundown today if both of you will tear up the record of wrongs. Quit saying, I'll do it when she does it. I'll do it when he does it. Stop it. Do it for him. Even if the other doesn't do it, you have no idea the peace that's coming. You tell nobody what they did. You don't let them be nervous around you. You don't even let them feel guilty. You see, Jesus knew how guilty these disciples felt. They felt awful. And he just says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Everything's on schedule. And God says that to you today. Thank him for his grace. And so pass it on to another person. Don't let them feel guilty. Let them save face. What's that mean? Dale Carnegie in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, has a section there. Let the other person save face. You cover for them. You act like you don't even know what they did. Instead of rubbing their noses in it, you just let them feel good. That's what Joseph did when he forgave his brothers. They were feeling so awful. And he said, look, wasn't you, wasn't you at all that did it. God did it. You didn't do it. God did it. These brothers couldn't believe their luck. That the men they were going to kill years before 
God's behind it all. He's a sovereign God. Let them save face. Protect them from their darkest secret. And you keep doing it. And this is important. In case I didn't make this clear when I preached here before, total forgiveness is a life sentence. That means you forgive them today, got to do it again tomorrow. They don't know you're doing this. I'll tell you something. Several of the people that, are, that I had to forgive those years ago, they're still alive. They're still alive. And I have to pray for them every day. I do. I do. Every day. They don't know it. The worst thing I can do is tell them. So don't ever tell them. If this sermon convicts you, don't go across the auditorium and say, oh, in the light of R.T.'s sermon, I forgive you. <laughs> They're going to say, for what? <laughs> well, you know what. <laughs> well, I don't. Oh, you do. I don't. Well, you should. Now you've got to fight. That's what you wanted. <laughs> because you can't bear the thought that they don't know how hurt you are. This is part of getting your anointing. I'm telling you, they don't know. The people that I've had to forgive have no idea I pray for them. I would never tell them. And when you pray for them, you actually literally ask God to bless them. You say, R.T., I could never do that. I'm going to tell you now, I know what you're thinking. If you could just say, Lord, I commit them to you, because you're hoping God will kill them. No, you ask God to bless them, and you mean it. I can tell you, in my old age, God has blessed my ministry. I was 87 last week, and I'm hoping to be around. Don't, don't, I don't know how you're going to beat today. Boy, Michael, you've got your work cut out for you if you're going to introduce me next year. But, but, but I'm going to say this. If I've got any secret, any secret at all to my success, it's not my education. It's not my brain. It's living this way. I'm telling you, he'll do it for you. You've got an anointing no one else has. You've got a gift no one else has. God will bless you. But it's in proportion to whether you can be to others as Jesus was to the disciples and you ask God to bless them. I'm finished. But wait a minute. Don't clap. I feel led to do, I believe I am led to do, what I did in the first service. I think I've done this before. It's decision time. I'm going to ask you, if you needed this sermon, in a minute from now, to stand up. Don't do it yet. You say, stand up in front of all these people. Mm-hmm. Well, then they'll know I've had a problem. Yeah, they will. So what? Does it matter? It's what God thinks. Don't stand unless by standing you're prepared to say, I won't tell what they did. RT, I've already done it. Don't do it anymore. Don't let them be afraid of you. Don't let them be nervous around you. Don't let them feel guilty. Let them save face. Protect them from their darkest secret. Promise that you'll do it tomorrow. 
day after tomorrow, a week from now, a year from now. Don't expect them to know. But God knows. This is where the anointing kicks in. You have no idea what it's going to mean to you. And you do it the rest of your life. Five, four, three, two, one. If you needed this and you're ready to forgive, I want you to stand to your feet. Oh, wait, 10 seconds. Don't miss this moment. It may not come around again. There's a verse in Isaiah, Seek the Lord while he may be found. His presence is here. Now, I'm going to do one more thing. You may not have expected this, but if you really meant it, I'm going to ask you to leave your seat and come down to the front. You in the gallery, in the balcony, I'll wait for you. Go to the nearest door, come downstairs. I want to pray with you. Come quickly. You that are standing upstairs, come down. The rest of you, come down to the front. And there's a reason for this. While you're coming, I will say that coming forward like this and standing, uh, th this is the easy part. may have taken a little bit of courage, but no, the hard part will be an hour from now, you'll think, did I really do that? Tomorrow morning at breakfast, after a cup of coffee, you say, I can't believe I did that. So I've given you a little time to think about it, because you can get out of it. We haven't prayed yet. We're going to go into a covenant. That makes it serious. The reason I brought you forward like this, you won't forget it this way. We're going to enter into a covenant. And you need to know that in the Bible, when a covenant was made, look at every single one of them, an animal was slaughtered. They always shed blood when they made a covenant. You all are under a covenant the blood of Jesus was shed 2,000 years ago. You're under the blood. That makes what's about to happen more serious. We're going to enter a, into a covenant. I'm going to give words to say. Say them if you mean them. If you don't mean them, don't say them. I'm not going to look and see who prays. It's not between you and me. It's between you and God. This is a moment that conceivably could be the most critical moment since your conversion. Here we go, out loud. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I know I have been bitter. I'm sorry for my unforgiveness. I forgive them. You forgive them. I set them free. I set them free. I set them free. Come Holy Spirit. Wash away my sins by Jesus' blood. I give you my life. Amen. I'm finished. God bless you. See you next year.